The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. Welcome. Big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Please let me know if you have any questions about the center. You can come up afterward. And uh, I always announce at the end of the month just a reminder of how the center operates. Some of you know that uh, since the center began in 1993, we've operated with this principle in the Buddhist tradition that's called dana, the circle of giving and receiving, freely giving, freely receiving. So that means for the last 25 years, we haven't charged for any of the programs. And the idea, the way it works, and this is you know, a basic principle in life, is we try to be awake and notice what's showing up in the moment and receiving it as a free gift, even if it's not so pleasant. So hopefully that's not the case with Common Ground. Right? As you receive whatever the center is for you, these teachings, the programs, whatever that's like, we practice receiving it as a free gift. No strings attached. And if, it, you know, if you experience it as something that's useful or helpful in your life, then really allow it to be the cause for gratitude to rise. It feels good. And of course, this happens because people in the past have made this place happened. You know, all the many thousands of people really that have supported the center, these teachings over the years. And then naturally over time you may feel like giving back. And then you let that be a free movement, a cause for happiness. And you give in a way that actually makes you happy. Because you're not giving because you've received, because then you didn't receive it as a free gift. So you're giving because you want to give. It makes you happy to give. And that's how the center operates. You know, we're like any other medium-sized nonprofit. You know, we have office staff, we have a building, we have a retreat property in western Wisconsin. We support our teachers, their livelihood. But this happens in this simple, beautiful circle of people receiving freely and giving freely in a way that makes sense in their lives. We don't talk about it a lot. We don't have a lot of fundraising material. We don't have suggested donations because it's really everybody's responsibility to figure out how to participate in that circle of receiving freely and giving freely. If you have questions, you can contact the center. We have more information on the website. There's a sheet of paper next to the donation bowls uh, that explain a little bit more. But just let us know if you have any questions about that. So we've been looking at these teachings on emptiness. As I've been saying the last five or six weeks now, that this is you know, understandably, appropriately, a provocative topic in this Buddhist scene, these, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. But remember, it's not philosophy. It's really all, all the teachings of the Buddha are about waking up to the way it is. So it's very pragmatic. It's always about what's here and now. We're waking up, and in that waking up, like in paying attention in this balanced way to the way it is, we notice. It's not about thinking. It's about noticing directly that this moment is empty. What is it empty of? Well, it's empty of anything other than this is being known. 
and I've been talking about this the last number of weeks, to really train the mind to be interested enough in the present moment to be intimate, to be balanced and clear and continuous in our present moment awareness, to really see that this moment is just this being known, this experience of the body being known, this experience of the mind being known. We talked about the six sense gates, the body is the five physical senses, and the activity of the mind. So every moment, it's just these, you know, the activity of the body, some combination of the activity of the body, the five physical senses, the activity of the mind being known. There's a very interesting, useful metaphor in the Buddhist tradition because it seems like there's something more going on than just something being known. Right? It feels like there's a stressed out, suffering, needy, whatever being here going on. Right? And the Buddha, in the tradition, the Buddha uses the image of fire. Most of you have heard the word Nibbana or Nirvana, right? So Nibbana is the Pali word and nirvana is the Sanskrit word. These are you know, from the languages spoken around the time of the Buddha and uh, different traditions of Buddhism like in this tradition, Theravada Buddhism, we use the Pali language for the sort of that's the teachings were recorded in that language and then the later Buddhist traditions use Sanskrit. That's why they're like Dhamma and Dharma, Kama and Karma, there are a lot of words that sound kind of alike because they're these two languages, Sanskrit and Pali. So we have this word um, in the in the tradition, and um, nibbana, nibbana and nirvana, and it's really about fire going out. That's what the word means: the extinguishing of the flame, the going out of the flame. That's what nibbana or nirvana means. You know, we usually translate it as awakening or liberation or something like that. But it just means the fires of greed, anger, and delusion, the fires of neurotic activity going out. So when we understand this moment as, oh yeah, this is being known, then it's that kind of clarity, that kind of simplicity really allows those fires to not be fed. Right? We're taking the fuel away. Now the thing is about that activity of fire, it's dependent on fuel. So we've been talking about the five aggregates. And that word kanda, one of the meanings of that word is like wood. Often it gets translated as aggregate or the stuff you know, the activity of the body and mind. And when this fuel is combined with craving, right, then we have the activity of that fire, right? We're burning with greed, anger, and delusion. When the mind personalizes the activity of the body and mind, personalizing, pers- personalizes seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touches, personalizes thinking, emoting, right? And relates with greed, relates with aversion, relates with craving, then we directly feel that burning, that activity, that spinning, right? 
the heart hurts. The heart feels burdened by that activity. Now, we've had all kinds of self-centered dramas, like when you think of the course of our lifetime, or even just today, you know, the last, whatever, 14 hours today, lots of burning. So, But when one of those burning episodes ceases, where does that person who was burning, that activity of my mind obsessing, worrying, wanting, hating, wondering, fantasizing, where does that fire go when it ends before the next fire begins? Right? I mean, clearly, as many dramas as our mind has been involved in, they've all ceased except the one that's going on right now, whatever that drama is. Right? So what happens to that fire when it goes out? It's in a way, it's indeterminate. Just like a normal fire when it goes out, when we remove the fuel from the fire, it just goes out. What, another question, reflective question is, well, what is this mind or what is this heart when no craving is active? What is the experience of the mind, the heart, this, without craving? Not even the craving to understand. See, we only... We're so uh, in the habit of associating what I take to be me, myself. We always associate that with the burning of the fire of greed, anger, and delusion. In a way, we are, you know, we interpret ourselves as this neurotic activity. Some of you know Trungpa Rinpoche, a very controversial Tibetan teacher. He's dead now, but he's one of the earlier Buddhist teachers to come to the West, uh, first to England, then to the United States. He started Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. And some of you know Pema Children. He was Pema Children's first teacher. Started the Shambhala centers around the country, very well-known sort of organization of centers around the country. And uh, although he was very controversial, did some things that seemed very unlike what a Buddhist, a well-known Buddhist teacher would do. But he also was brilliant. And uh, I remember very early on in my practice, you know, in the early 80s, reading one of his books, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Kind of made a big splash back at that time and made a real difference in my life. But anyway, somebody asked him, you know, a very natural question to ask a Buddhist teacher, what, what gets reborn, you know, because... You know, in the Buddhist in the Buddha's teachings, and certainly very prevalent at the time of the Buddha was this idea of rebirth. And so, the person asked Trumpa Rinpoche, "So, what gets reborn?" And he had this great answer. He said, "Your neurotic or the neurotic activities get reborn, or whatever unfinished business remains in the mind, that's what gets reborn." There's a very interesting line we chant uh, often at the center of this Metta Sutta, the Buddha's Discourse on Loving-Kindness. It's very well known in the tradition. And the last line is, uh, is not born again into this world. Just sort of like this is the ultimate thing, like to not be reborn again into this world. And that doesn't sound good. You know, it's like, wait a minute. 
emptiness, not being reborn again into this world, flame going out as Nibbana. <laughs> oh, is the door unlocked? Maybe I'll, this, Maybe this isn't what I'm looking for. Because I'm here to be, you know, I'm here as a miserable human being trying to not be miserable. I want to be born again into a life where there's a lot of happiness and people respect me and, you know, things work out and I don't have knee pain. And, you know, we have this idea that, like, what heaven, what Nibbana, what awakening will be like will be really nice. But that's not what the Buddha teaches. I mean, he, he acknowledges, you know, there is heaven. It's like being reborn in Edina or wherever heaven might be. <laughs> Maybe there's somebody from Edina. You can tell us. Is, that, is it heaven? <laughs> but actually, we know. We, we read about these people who have really, you know, they have beautiful bodies and they have they're adored by others and they have some kind of power or wealth and they're not being oppressed. And they're not necessarily happy. I mean, it's not that we would choose oppression or poverty or ill health or, you know, whatever. But clearly, you know, we don't really understand where happiness. I mean, we have this idea, like I often joke, using myself as the butt of the joke, like if only I had that perfect cabin, you know, then I'd be happy when no one would bother me and I could afford it and never has any maintenance needs and, you know, no bugs, no rodents, you know, not too close to a road but not too isolated, only cool neighbors that think just like me. So we have all these ideas, but they're, they end up, like whenever we think we got to get somewhere or get something in order to be happy, we've just made more suffering for ourselves. So the Buddha's, what the Buddha taught, like where real happiness is, is the cessation of something, right? The cessation, the going out of the flame. Now, how is that not nihilistic? Right? So, the, you know, in the tradition, the very first talk the Buddha gave is basically saying that, yeah, it may make sense, you know, that the spiritual path is about not being dependent on beautiful sense experiences coming your way. But then his next line was, but nor is the spiritual path about rejecting sense reality, sense experience. So it's neither about like, oh yeah, when I get things just the way I want them, then I'll be happy. But it also isn't about when I'm finally out of here, then I'll be happy. Right? It's somehow being here, being a human being, being a sensitive human being, being in relationship with everybody else, being in the middle of a world that is messy and oppressive and unjust and unfair, right? What is freedom? What is love? What is engagement look like in this place, in this 
life each of us has, each of us in our own particular set of circumstances with this body, this conditioned mind, these relationships, this, these you know, set of circumstances that are showing up in my life. What is freedom? What is ease? What is love as a willingness to include, a willingness to be intimate? What is that? What would that look like in the life that's already here as opposed to thinking that freedom, love, whatever heaven is, is like when I get someplace better, when I get out of here and get to that utopian idea I have of me and my life and the world where everything is just the way I think it should be. I mean, when we look at history, you know, how many millions, maybe even more billions of human beings have been killed, oppressed, have suffered because of somebody's idea of utopia. You know, oh yeah, I'll be safe when we get rid of these people or when we convert these people and they think like I think. or they, You know, whatever it is, how we have taken advantage of each other in order to create what we think as a utopia or what we think would make us feel more safe. We can justify all kinds of terrible, terrible things. Every genocide, every oppressive economic system or racism, it always is about like, I'm just trying to make myself feel safe. You know, I'm just trying to make heaven on earth or, you know, whatever. So this, these teachings on emptiness is really about understanding where spiritual freedom, what is the direction, you know, if it's not about getting somewhere, like where things are just the way I want, want them to be, and if it's not about rejecting my lived experience, my sense experience, like forget it, there's no hap- happiness here. I just want ex- I, extinction in kind of a nihilistic sense, like get me the hell out of here. I want out. If it's, not a, if it's neither of those two things, then, then we get curious. Okay. So then he has this teaching. He says, there is no fire like lust, no gris, grip like hatred, no net like delusion, no river like craving. Right? So he's talking about this agitation, right? the burning of greed, anger, and delusion. And that's what we study. You know, when we're practicing being awake, being mindfully aware, what often we're feeling, seeing, is the burning. You know, the mind is agitated. The body reflects the mind's agitation. There's something that's unsettled. I mean, we don't just go immediately to calm or to peace or to stillness. Sometimes, right, we land in those more quiet places. But we notice this burning. So then what do we do with this burning? Well, as we're observing it with some stability of mind, we notice how we throw fuel into the flames. Oh yeah, this makes it burn brighter. You know, this makes it hurt more. I mean, how many times have we seen that? Like even something ordinary like knee pain. Now knee pain itself is just sensation being known. But not liking knee pain, that's the fire. 
right? Or a painful memory comes up. The memory itself, that mental image that is the memory and the emotion that goes with it, like maybe it's a moment of loss that you're remembering, right? And then there's that very natural feeling, unpleasant feeling of loss. But then the mind spins with it. You know, why me? Or why this person? Or whatever. And that's the burning. So then we see, oh yeah, this way of relating, this way of being with that is adding fuel. Well, what way of being with it, what way of relating cools the fire, supports the going out of that fire? So this is like the Buddha is pointing to something so straightforward, so pragmatic, where basically first step, it's a little bit like in the 12-step programs for those of you who haven't been in it, in any of them, you know, one of the first things they recommend in this sort of recovery program, it's, you know, been around for a long time now, is to own up. I'm an addict. You know, I'm, I'm addicted in this way. You know, and there are many different ways, different things that human beings get addicted to. But the first thing is to own it. Like, yeah, there is this very deep, groove or pattern in my mind to get away from pain by drinking or using drugs or having sex or you know whatever the the object of or the uh, drug is that we're addicted to and so it's the same thing it's like the mind has its own addictive patterns like when our heart is burning right then from the point of view of me having a heart that's burning, right? what do I want to do? But a lot of what we do then is we go back to the drug. <laughs> right? We think about it from a self-centered point of view. We turn the crunch that comes with the attachment, with the churning of greed, anger, and delusion, you know, that, those oppressive or afflictive emotional patterns that are just there, habits in the mind, we relate to it in a way that feeds the fire. And you can do it two ways, like hating yourself for doing that feeds the fire. Getting identified, like digging in deeper to the pattern, feeds the fire. What doesn't feed the fire? I mean, we know intellectually, those of you who have been around for a while, know the right answers, like we'll be mindfully aware that the burning's like this, you know? Being caught in craving is like this. Being caught in aversion is like this. This is being known. It feels like this. Not liking knee pain is like this. Not liking the coolness in the room, the cold temperature is like this. Being peaceful is like this. So whether it's a really painful mental or bodily experience or really pleasant mental or bodily experience. We don't feed the fire when the wisdom of the mind knows this is being known. So it keeps things very simple and it doesn't add anything more. It doesn't make something more than what it is and it doesn't make the present moment less than what it is. It recognizes the present moment as it actually is. This is being known. And as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, one of the most 
profound, earth-shaking insights, you know, it's really the beginning of this a series of insights of waking up, is to realize that any moment in the past and the present and the future is never more than something is being known. That's it. All of our existence, life, whatever, is just this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. But because we're, to some degree, most of the moments lost in our thoughts, uh, under the spell of our thoughts, dependent on the meaning thoughts project, we're pretty sure there's something more than something being known, like me. You know, yeah, I'm the one who is the you know is aware that something's being known, or that something being known is happening to me, right? We project somebody, some permanent me, to whom the something being known either belongs to or refers back to. We just presume there's a something behind the something being known. But that something that we presume is behind the something being known is never found. All that is ever found when the awareness is stable and clear is something is being known. That's all that's found. And it turns out that training the mind to relate, to experience the most intense experiences, the most difficult experiences, the most beautiful experiences, the most boring or ordinary experiences, training the mind to relate in a continuous way, present moment awareness, the wisdom that understands this is being known, this is being known, this is being known, is cooling. It cools the fires. It doesn't add fuel to the fires. You'll see this directly. And the cool thing is suffering, which from a, when we're untrained, when the mind is untrained, when my mind is suffering, when my mind is stressed out, that experience of being stressed out feeds the habit of adding more fuel. You know, it's like when we're really burning, what does it feel? What do we feel like doing? We feel like throwing more fuel in the fire. That's what we do. We either bother other people who then bother us, or we just directly bother ourselves, or we do both. The, the interesting thing is that either suffering is used as a cause for more suffering. The actual direct, immediate experience of suffering causes us to do things that make set emotion more suffering. Or suffering can be part of the feedback loop that allows things to cool down. Right? It's like a barometer. So we get intimate with the stress. We get intimate with the burning because that allows us to discern what adds to the flames and what cools the flames. See, we this is the thing. This is why we have to be intimate with suffering, not because we're sadists or masochists. I forget which is the one that likes to suffer. <laughs> masochists? Yeah, okay. It's not that we're masochists, that li- you know, someone who likes to suffer. It's that we need to be intimate with the suffering to notice if how we're relating is intensifying it or cooling it. And there's no way to really see, to understand how the mind works without being really intimate, really exposed, really open, 
vulnerable, undefended. It's really the last thing we want. Nobody wants to feel what it feels like to be a human being. But it's the only way to freedom. We can't like become wise and at the same time choose to be disconnected from the way it is. Like We're a suffering human being, but I'm going to stay distracted and that's going to be my strategy to becoming wise and free. Right? Or I'm going to be disconnected. No. We have to actually abandon our ideas, our dependence on our thoughts about things. Because when our mind is dependent on how we think, the meaning we're giving to who I am or what's happening, then we can't be clear. We can't be intimate. So we have to let go of everything. When we're mindful, even in a moment, we have abandoned everything. It's not a little thing to be mindful in one moment. You can't be sort of knowing what's going on, like have your interpretation there in your mind, and be mindful. You've got to do one or the other. If you're going to be mindful, you have to let go of any meaning you're bringing to the moment. It's a real exposure. It's a real vulnerability to be mindful, to be open. Oh, it's like this. It's like this. When I say it's like this, you know, as a sort of prompt, that this isn't pointing to some idea that you have about who you are or what's going on. It's pointing to the raw immediacy of body and mind being known, the activity of the body and mind being known. Not mediated by any conceptual interpretation. It's not about that. You don't have to get rid of the thoughts. Just don't attend to them. Don't be dependent on them. Instead, we've shifted our allegiance to what in Buddhism we call Dhamma or Dharma, right? Those are those. Dharma is Sanskrit. Dhamma is Pali language. Right? The way it is, not the way we think it is, but the way it is not mediated by language. And here we're not putting up any defense. So if it hurts in the moment, if we're anxious in the moment, if we're excited in the moment, if we want to hold on to the good, the beauty, the pleasantness in the moment, we just let things move. We can't really understand what's happening, and be controlling, and be dependent. Either we, we're learning, which means we're open, exposed, undefended, or we're feeding the fire. Really, it's that simple. And you can just, that's actually a useful question to drop in the mind. Am I feeding the fire? Or is the mind understanding? Is the mind knowing the difference between feeding and cooling? That's real insight. Oh, this is feeding the fire. And, and that's a, it's a real privilege to even to see that, to see how you're feeding the fire. To be honest enough with yourself to know, oh yeah, this is planting seeds of suffering. This is right now in the moment suffering and setting emotion suffering down the road and probably setting emotion suffering around me too. Right? Because we sympathetically vibrate with each other. So if I'm living, acting, being in a way that's diluted and feeding the flames, 
right? It's going to be easier for you to feed the flames. You've got role model, right? You have a role right here. And the same way, if we're around people who are really getting good at cooling the flames, it's easier for us. That's just people feel that way, even though obviously we're still in this space, a bunch of suffering beings, but maybe, hopefully, maybe not feeding the flames quite as neurotically as maybe out there. People feel that kind of coolness walking into the space. Like somehow the space, the teachings, the people are, are a symbol or mani- sort of express or hold this possibility of cooling down, living in a peaceful, equanimous, clear, intimate way. We're not feeding the flames. And this is not just individually in our hearts, but what's going on in the world, the craziness, the meanness, the injustice in the world, that's just an outer expression of what's going on in our own hearts. So if we want to cool the flames out there, we have to stop feeding the flames in here. And we see this act, you know, in terms of the wider social issues, political issues, justice issues. We see how when we see that, you know, whatever it is that's provocative, whatever it is that pushes our buttons, we see how easy it is to want to feed the flames, whether it's with self-righteousness, anger, closing down, giving up, you know, different ways. But one way or another, it's like, oh, that flame, seeing the suffering, touching the suffering, just neurotically, you know, the mind neurotically does something that plants more seeds of suffering. And over and over, it replicates itself. So what's a different way? Well, two basic moves, right? We use the stability of awareness to be intimate with the way it is. Oh yeah, things are burning. Out there they're burning. My friends, they're burning. My enemies, they're burning. And my own heart, burning, burning, burning. Like The Buddha, one of the early discourses he gave, in, at the time of the Buddha, they were really the sort of Brahmins, the kind of main spiritual cult at the time, they were fire worshippers, you know, and they did a lot of animal sacrifices and besides throwing other things in the fire, it's still some elements of this in Hinduism today. But uh, so he gave this, you know, so they worshipped the fire, a lot of the priests at the time. So he sort of flipped it. And one of the early talks he gave just, you know, a few weeks, I think, after becoming, you know, his own insight and becoming a teacher, or starting to teach, and he had gave this sutta, uh, all is a flame. And just to talk that, you know, with our basic conditioning, our basic ignorance, our way of relating, our way of being in the world is to be on fire, to be agitated, to be restless, to always wanting to become somebody, to get something, to get rid of something, right? This is sort of, animal nature and as a human being we're an animal and so we burn with these fires all the time it's a restless realm 
as cute as wild animals can be, you know, that's like our projection, they're restless. They're burning with greed, anger, and delusion. Right? And we're not that different, you know, checking people out and, you know, as uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Amaro, he's a British Buddhist monk, abbot of um, Amaravati in England, a a well-known monastery in England. He once said, you know, as a beast, we look upon the world in terms of, can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Is it going to eat me? And everything else we ignore, you know? Can I eat it? Now, we can expand, like, can I eat it? Can I have it? You know, nice cell phone, nice jacket, you know. Do I want it? Can I have it? It doesn't want me. It isn't going to take something from me, you know. And and then the sexual connection, because that's such a deep programming in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. And we ignore most everything else. And then the fires burn around this, but with wisdom and stability of awareness, we can see that. So how do we become or how do we manage or learn to be intimate with being a sexual being, being a, like a vulnerable creature you know, with thin skin, no scales. We're pretty soft you know, compared to a lot of the other animals around us. We're pretty vulnerable in a way. You know, our heart just, it's got a few ribs. They're not even very thick, the bones there. It's just like a few, maybe an inch away, right? Something just in the brain. I mean, it's got a little bit better covering, but... So we're, and then not only that, but, you know, we're ingesting, we're breathing. We can't, we go crazy trying to make sure, like, is it safe to eat this, breathe this? No, we're totally vulnerable. And it's just emotionally vulnerable to like other people's stuff that are around us all the time. Their pain, their trauma. It's a, an exposed realm. So how do we find freedom? How do we find open to peace? How do we live with love? How do we put out the flames? What makes this existence, what makes this existence hard to bear? What fuels the flames? It's this presumption that there's somebody that has a problem. Somebody who needs to go somewhere. Like even to be safe. Somebody who needs to be safe. Somebody who's afraid. Right? Those, all those kinds of thoughts go unquestioned. We just believe what all those stories point to, right? Like there's somebody who needs to survive, somebody who wants to get ahead, somebody who's afraid of being humiliated. I mean, it's so interesting. I was talking to one of our leaders and teachers just uh, recently, and something really shocking happened in her family. Just totally out of the blue, um, young person in her family, young adult in a close family, heart just stopped. And uh, luckily some medical students were around. They could revive her. They got her to the hospital. They, you know, induced a coma. Just uh, sort of 
buy some time basically to figure things out. It's just like this exposure, like can we let the intensity of that just move through us when with the ups and downs, with the joys and sorrows, with the mystery? Can we let everything that happens in, just go right through us? What's the danger in that? What's the problem in letting life be the way? And remember, that's not about being passive because part of what we're letting be, part of what we're letting loose is the personality that is going to respond, that's going to speak up or quiet down or do this or do that. Can we let that be too? And it doesn't mean that nothing matters. It means that everything does matter. And because everything matters, instead of trying to get tight and control everything, we're going to relax, right? We're going to be intimate. We're going to be in allegiance with sensitivity, with presence, not with doing or being the doer or being in charge or being controlling or getting it right. We give up on that project, that allegiance, and instead we the heart becomes in allegiance with that exposure, that sensitivity, like presence. And nothing more. This is being known. This is being known. This is being known. And it creates this amazing dance, right? Because that sensitivity, that profound sensitivity, is then what feeds the engagement. That's what leads to skillful, appropriate action in life not trying to do it right or being afraid of doing it wrong. That's an intermediary stage. I mean, the first stage is you don't care about doing it right or wrong and you're just doing whatever in the moment seems fun or, you know, interesting. And, you know, that's pretty clear that, like, that's a limited way to live a life is just to do whatever your impulse is to do. And then you start paying attention and you realize, oh my God, it matters what I do. And then you start getting appropriately tight. It's like, the, in the Buddhist terms, you, you're waking up to the truth of karma. It matters what I say and don't say. It matters what I do and don't do. We're all connected. We're all in this soup, setting emotion, suffering for each other and ourselves. And we start to freeze up like, oh my God, I don't want to blow it. I don't want to set emotion hell, you know. I want to make things turn out great. And it feels like tight in our heart, a burden, because I, I want to do it right. But the more we continue to study, that's just an interme- intermediary stage. We realize that the best way to, in a sense, live in alignment with karma, that who we are, what we do, how we think matters, is to put all, to put everything in the basket of sensitivity and being open and being vulnerable and being right in the middle, seeing clearly, feeling deeply, and letting go. Because to do that, we have to let go of everything else. Expectation, agenda, hopes and fears. Because to the degree the mind is fixed on any of those kinds of things, it can't be sensitive, can't be open, 
can't be right in the middle, can't be awake, can't be aware. So we move right into the middle. That's called following the teachings of the Buddha. Learning that total exposure is the safe way, is the wise way, is the in the direction of freedom. And trying to be safe is in the direction of more fear, more tightness. Right? We just one way or another we get ourselves in a box. We end up in a sterile house in the middle of a gated community or you know, I mean, if you're in a gated community that's okay. <laughs> Unless you think you're safe. <laughs> right? I there's this great article by I think um what's her name? Susan Piver. I'm not sure how she pronounces her last name. She's a Buddhist practitioner teacher. And she relays a story, I forget if it has to do with her own experience or a friend of hers, but anyway, somebody has fallen in love and is having a conversation with a good friend and then finally asks the good friend, well, do you think the relationship can work? And this wise friend says to her, says to this person, of course it can work, as long as you don't think that the relationship's going to make you happy. Right? That's the answer. Of course it can work, as long as you're not dependent on the relationship making you happy, because that will ruin it. Of course, life can work as long as you, a sense of separate self, doesn't expect to get safety from life, to get something you can hold on to from life, because that isn't in the picture. There's no safety in life. You don't get to keep anything, right? We kind of know this intellectually, but that's not how we live. We live as if we're going to be able to keep it. We're going to be able to get something, and it will be mine. My knowledge, my friends, my whatever. So what would it be, what would we do, how would we live if we really deeply were grounded in the reality that we don't get to keep anything, we don't get to hold on to anything, that total exposure is the way, is the easy way, is the beautiful way, is the skillful way, is a way of giving back, a way of taking care of everybody. I'll leave it here. So we have a little bit of time to hear from other folks in the room. We have about eight minutes, time for maybe four or so folks to share a little bit about what you've been learning in your own life, in your own practice, and questions, of course, too. Anybody want to begin? Hi, my name is Robin, and I have an observation. Um, I'm sure many people are are also in a situation where at work there you get a lot of, or I do, <laughs> a lot of positive feedback for um, being very productive and getting a lot done um, and getting making sure other people are doing a lot of work too. And I've noticed recently... Um, when talking to my coworkers and when I'm talking to them about, you know, getting other work done, that my voice um, gets rushed, that I'm telling them that, you know, they need to work faster or something. Um, but then recently I've noticed that, like, I st- I'm almost, like, stopping halfway through when I notice that I'm, like, feeling really rushed and then it must sound like I'm crazy or something because my voice like completely changes and like within one phrase, like I'm much calmer. Um, 
but I've had like a couple moments like that where I've just caught myself halfway. Yeah. But that's how mindfulness works, you know, and we're not embarrassed because when we see that we're feeding the flames, then compassion will arise and we'll do whatever we can, depending on how much, what the understanding is, to change it. And I bet they pick that up. You know, I don't, I don't think they, I bet they don't, I mean, some people might think you're like, what's going on? <laughs> but I bet people who are more in tune understand exactly what's happening, you know? That you're, that self-correcting is wisdom. Yeah, thanks, Robin, for sharing that. Did somebody else have their hand up back there? Yeah, Tom. I'm Tom. I recently had the experience um, uh, last week, w- week before last. Uh, I went to a conference. Um, I signed up to go to the conference. I took myself to the conference. Um to learn some things for my business. I'm self-employed. And uh, when I got there, I found myself tightening up. Maybe a little closer, Tom. I found myself tightening up when I got to this conference and remembering all of the conferences I've been to in my life and how I've never really liked going to conferences. There are lots of people there, and... um, I have gotten better in life at going to conferences, but but some of the the thought patterns that I associate with conferences came flying back as I'm stepping into this new conference. Like, how do I do it right? How do I meet the right people? How do I um, advance whatever it is I'm here to advance with respect to my business? And in my practice, um, I one day um, was sitting with all of that and, uh, and was moved to set an intention around this particular conference of just being in my heart. That's what came to me. And my mind objected immediately. It's like, <laughs> well, that's, that's stupid. You're here for business. Don't be in your heart. Um, long story short, uh, I, I made that conference a, a laboratory of sorts, and I worked um, and sat and continued to work to remain in my heart. And... Um, and I experienced it so uh, so differently, so unlike anything previously. Um, I can't, of course, know everything that's going to come of it, but my experience of it in those moments was um, uh, of this large group of 500 people that several people seemed to cycle back toward me. We got acquainted. We developed heart connections. Um, I, I suspect I'll be in touch with them for some time to come. Um, I, I had uh, ideas about what to do. Um, I learned things that I that I needed to learn that I didn't know what to ask for. <laughs> um, and, and there were all sorts of seren- seemingly serendipitous things too, um, connecting with the right people to to find information, um, being. Uh, uh, 
being led to people with common interests that really were apart from the primary reason that I was at the conference, but just because we have some of the same interests. Um, so, uh, so that's where my practice mm. has taken me. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. We have time for one more person. Anybody else like to share a little bit from their practice? What you've been learning? Yeah, please, Mary. Um, I just have a quick thought or an experience with this kind of thing um, that I had actually really recently. Um, but just in my in my practice, like my I'm finding that my ability to kind of in the moment see something where something is going and and change direction. Um, the example that I'm thinking of is uh, in school, I'm working on a group project and one of the group members started um, making kind of an assumption, a judgmental assumption about another group member. And I just, part of me could have gone down that road and joined in and, and stoked the fire. But I just said, you know, I'm not comfortable making that assumption. And I think that she realized what, where she was taking it and she changed her route. So, um, would, would, would I have been, would you say that I was trying to control it too much or I just set up? Am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah. We're just, you know, it's, it's like we give up trying to control the ship and we put all the emphasis in feeding the ship, you know, the movement of our life with really good data. So that's the whole idea of being intimate, like really feeling what we have here to feel in the moment, really seeing, really being aware, being awake. And that affects how the personality shows up and what it does. And we just trust that. And even if what our personality, you know, what we do and say is somehow off, because we're putting everything in the willingness to be sensitive, we'll sense that it's off. And we'll let that in. Right, well, let that touch the heart. Oh, yeah, this feels off. This feels like I'm not, what I did or what I'm doing is not good. And that's the feeling that I got is that I would not feel right participating yeah. in the conversation in that way. So I just said, you know what, I'm not comfortable going down that road. Um, and I felt like I would be more able to live with that than, than to um, feed into it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Noticing the space of silence. How nice it is to be able to let go of the words, not to try to hold on to anything. And we take a moment and appreciate all of the people before us in their complicated, busy, difficult lives. Somehow they came across these teachings, did their practice, 
woke up to some degree, became wiser, kinder human beings, passed on the teachings to the next generation. And for so many hundreds of years, 2,500 years, now we receive these teachings, this lineage of this human lineage of wisdom, kindness. It's our turn to wake up as best we can to become part of the causes for wisdom in the world, kindness in the world, justice in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.